it absolutely wasn't a cockiness that thought that I was going to be successful. It was a passion that I can't live in a world that's any other way. I can't imagine having all of us living in this world together and accepting that our virtual selves, our, our digitally recorded selves could be falsified, could be sold, bought and sold without any say-so, without any control, without any means of us to actually look at each other as humans. So if you are in a position of being a parent, you are fiduciary for human life. If you are an employer, you are a fiduciary for human life. Our HR departments have gotten so wrapped up in trying to be plastic Barbie dolls that they forgot. From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'm so happy to introduce today's guest, my good friend and colleague, Michelle Finner Indenity. Michelle believes that privacy is a fundamental human right. She's passionate about engineering privacy into software, systems, and applications. She's the co-author of the Privacy Engineers Manifesto and the Privacy Engineers Companion. Michelle is currently the CEO of Drumwave, a data value company headquartered in Palo Alto. She is the founder of the Identity Project, a public service organization to address privacy needs in sensitive populations like children and the elderly and emerging technology paradigms. She is the former VP and Chief Privacy Officer at Cisco and has also held executive leadership positions at McAfee Intel and Oracle Sun Microsystems. I met Michelle through the Executive Women's Forum, and she is someone that I have admired and looked up to throughout my entire career. Michelle, welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you. I've admired and looked up to you from the moment you set foot on the stage as the one to watch. And boy, were we right when you won that award, my dear. <laughs> thank you. Michelle, I would love to share with our listeners the story of the Privacy Engineers Manifesto. What's the deal? <laughs> yeah. So I, I'll tell you the, the origin story of the manifesto was really, a, it's sort of a story of my broken childhood. But don't feel too sorry for me because it was broken because my father was a mathematician and early engineer at the Standard Oil Company in the U.S. Navy and then increasingly other large data centers, Corning Glass, Merck, on and on. And so he spent his career both at companies and consulting into companies, looking at security architecture, implementing many of the companies that I later came to work for. He put the first Oracle database into Corning Glassworks. He installed the first firewall into several of his customers when they first arrived. So my dad kind of has that technical side to him. And so of course I said, oh, I'm, I'm never going to do anything technical. How uncool. That's dad world. And of course my mother um, and my father are both also attorneys. And so I said, of course, I'm never going to be an attorney because that's uncool mom and dad world. Well, long story short, I was a patent litigator before I got into data privacy, working in high tech. So 
every Saturday I would call home and talk to my dad about the emerging policy issues in data privacy. I had a, a CEO who's now a board member of mine, Scott McNeely, who very famously said, you have zero privacy, get over it. And I had a hard time as an intellectual property lawyer and a young privacy lawyer reconciling the fact that we were selling containers in Unix. We were doing garbage collection in Java. We had encryption with Diffie himself developing that technology. And we were creating a stack of identity management that separated the who and the what and the where based on rights and controls. So these thoughts in my mind were like, wait a minute here, we're saying one thing with our technology. We're saying another thing very loudly with our sort of, I'll call it rhetoric. And the world is starting to implement those fair information principles way back from the 1960s when we really looked across data as something that was going to drive our economy forward. You know, Grace Hopper, our great common hero, once said that information would one day be on the corporate balance sheet because it's more valuable than the hardware that processes it. So if you look at these threads coming together, I realize it's a longish backstory. Every Saturday, I would do my daughterly duties and call home, and I would discuss with my father, how do I make these technical people build in policy? And he would say things like, well, we need a, a Zachman framework. Uh, and, and that means we need to really talk to business people before we start building technology. So we, we put together, how would that work? And, and what, what is this universal modeling language when you talk about creating or adding systems or, or using data to solve those business problems? Well, modeling language actually is, is incredibly amenable to policy requirements. And so between this back and forth over the space of about 15 years, we started to really address the fair information principles now along came Ann Kavukian and her wonderful work in privacy by design. So the policy of privacy design says build it in. But when you confront an engineer with things like reasonable or by default or customer win-win game theory, they sort of look at you and go, that's so cute. This feels like compliance training. I'm going to go over here and do some code. And so we had to bridge that gap. And so what we did is inviting in along the way, the great Jonathan Fox, who is my longstanding 20 year partner in crime, former pioneer in digital licensing models um, and execution. The three of us together put together the Privacy Engineers Manifesto. Initially we said, let's have privacy engineering guidelines for privacy by design, but it became very clear between our three points on the compass of operations, technology, and policy that we needed what we call, we came to call the manifesto because it really is a cry for development more than a prescriptive set of rules. So if you think about privacy engineering, data centricity, human centricity, you have to think about these various points of the compass and importantly, how do you operationalize them? How do you organize a business around it? How do you create metrics? And ultimately, how do you value data as much as you value humans? And how do you put those metrics on the same balance sheet as you do when you're saying, I bought some hardware today and it cost $10. I bought some software. I subscribed it for $10 a month. 
we don't have that language for data. And so that's the drive behind the Privacy Engineers Manifesto and in my current role at Drumwave. Phenomenal. Michelle, I actually want to take a step back and talk to you a bit about being a patent litigator as an intellectual property lawyer. You know, one of the things that I love to hear about on Humans of InfoSec is the different backgrounds that people come from. And in my experience, as a security professional, when I interact with privacy professionals, they're mostly lawyers. How did you decide that you wanted to be a lawyer? And how did you find yourself going from intellectual property to privacy? So unfortunately, I I wish I could say I had this great plan and I scheduled it out and I put up some inspirational posters and I went for it. The reality is it was a mistake and it was a mistake. So as an undergraduate, I have a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology um, and I also studied economics, but I was really focused on my research projects and I had two different prevailing, I had a couple of them, but I had two major research projects that I did for all four years of my undergraduate. The first was working with severely handicapped students using a robotic RICO arm. So those little arms you see putting together cars, uh, the brand happened to be RICO, an Apple IIe Plus PC, and all bespoke code, and an adapted paddle. So the kids couldn't use a keyboard for various reasons. So we had an adapted paddle that was associated with each of the joints, a direction of the joint, and then go. So it was quite a feat to make the robot do anything, but I was there as an 18-year-old freshman coming, looking at a Bachelor of Science in Psychology. I was supposed to be looking at the kids and saying, how are they progressing in their studies? And how are they using the tools that we're giving them, the the educational tools, i.e. the robots and the software? What I came to discover very, very quickly is the human finds a way, and and I'll just, I'll, I'll leave that as a complete sentence, the human finds a way. And what I mean by that is every single child would very quickly find the bugs in the computer that would cause the robotic arm to totally go berserk and reset itself. Oftentimes with a beaker of glass and some liquid in it or something that would make every adult in the room go crazy and go, ah, you know, this is an expensive thing. What's going to happen? It would make noise. It would break things. And I would be nose to nose with not a disabled person, but a child whose eyes were delighted, who had exerted control over his or her environment, who had experienced that wonderful sense of exploration and mischief that every child should experience. And so, yeah, it's a feel-good moment. However, the data backs it up. So the more we worked with these kids over time, the more feedback we got from their caregivers that they were more active in choosing things like what they want to eat, which makes a big deal when you have to hand feed a child. If they don't want it in their mouth, it's not going to stay there. It's an economic problem. It's a logistics problem. It's a food waste problem. That's just one example. So the kids started to feel empowered 
based on a half hour session they would have with this robotic device, not just learning that when you mix yellow and blue, you get green, but learning that you can exert control using tools and technologies. So with this knowledge in mind, and I realize this is a, a much longer backstory, I wanted to go get my PhD in clinical psychology. And so I went down to interview for a PhD program. And this is where that sort of beautiful mistake happens. Head full of steam. I've got four years behind me. I've worked on grant proposals. I'm advocating for families so they can stay in the program because most profoundly handicapped children's families are not intact. Unfortunately, it's an incredibly stressful situation. And I sat down nose to nose with this professor and he said, my darling, he didn't say darling, my dear, something like that. You are not a researcher. And he showed me his calendar and he said, this is what I do every day. And he showed me meetings with other professors to get grant dollars, discussing, doing grading, doing behind the scenes paperwork. And he said, you have to really think about your life in terms of what you do every day after you have your coffee. And for me, I push papers around and I launch people's careers like you. And I really do get a lot of pleasure about that. But he said, I know from knowing you for 10 minutes that you're an advocate. What you are getting out of this program is something that is so much bigger than should we invest in more robots and should we have bigger labs in schools for human rights accommodation of disabled folks. And so he said, listen, I'll make you a deal. You go away and do something in advocacy for a year. And if you still think that you wanna be a researcher, and have my calendar, then you come back. And that was maybe 35 years ago, maybe longer, <laughs> almost 40 years ago. Incredible. So, oh, so it was a long time ago. So uh, maybe 30, I, I, won't, I won't overage myself. So that's when I moved to New York and I, I ended up as a paralegal first, took some time off, did it, every job under the sun. You know, I was a maid for a while. I, I stuffed envelopes, uh, I was a paralegal, and then went to night school at Fordham Law. And so patent law to me was another way of looking into someone's eyes and seeing that connection between invention and a lot of naughtiness. We know our technical clients very well and discovery because patent law is very much like privacy law and certainly like ethics engineering and privacy engineering and security. It inherently is about novel and non-obvious solutions that may be based and are based in history, which is your disclosure in a patent, you know, the, what's come before the prior art as it's known, and what are the fencings of this ephemeral right, the claims, those beautiful claims in a patent. They're the things that A, fence off your borderline of your intellectual ownership. So we, we've decided as societies around the world that you can actually own ideas. That itself is a remarkable thing we, we should never take for granted. And we also say, the, here's the boundary of that idea. I don't want you to know the vaccine for COVID-19 and be able to either harm people or hide it from people. So there's policies around this, there's technology around this, and there's concepts of ownership that are constantly shifting. If you take that brain into the environment of privacy, you can see the echoes. We've got things like the right to privacy written 
by Warren and Brandeis in 1893, talking about this shift from tangible rights to intellectual property rights to something known as a privacy right. And that privacy right has so much nuance of what I often tell people that tell me, oh, I, I've got privacy because I've encrypted everything. I think in InfoSec, that's like everyone's go-to, right? Because it's secrecy. It's, <laughs> it's private. And I'm like, it's, privacy is not like putting on your pants to cover your body. It's like <laughs> knowing where and when you can take your pants off at your choosing. It's sharing. It's having the relationships you want to have and then ending those relationships. I don't leave my doctor's office typically without putting my pants back on. You know, I, I mean, you do you if that's your thing, but <laughs> typically it's not admired if you do. So the shift from IP to privacy makes sense to me now intellectually looking back on it, but I, I actually got to Sun Microsystems based on a bit of identity mismanagement in that I, I got a call one day, I was working on a very large case and was working like crazy, like you watch movies about law firms and I literally had a sleeping bag under my desk. It was insane. So I was still in the hazing phase of my career, I call it. And I got a recruiter call saying this Sun Microsystems place was hiring and they were looking for an intellectual property lawyer. And I asked my friend at the time, what do you think about this Java thing? Do you think it's got any legs and he was like java you mean java like that <laughs> thing that is everything right now uh, oh yeah 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 so uh that's how that's how knowledgeable i was about the company and i thought well sure i'll talk to these guys it's it may be time for me to go in-house and and take a shift and slow down maybe have a couple of kids and when i got there i talked to all these trademark people and at the end of the day, I finally met somebody who was a patent guy. And I said, wow, I've met these lovely trademark people. So please, like, what kind of a patent portfolio are you looking at? You know, because I was a litigator. I wasn't, I wasn't a patent attorney, which are the, the folks who write the claims and argue with the patent and trademark office. And he pushed my resume across the table. And the recruiter had changed things around. So I looked like I was a trademark lawyer with a little bit of patent experience. Hmm. And it couldn't have been further from the truth. So I sort of chuckled to myself that, you know, my career was sort of made by an identity mistake. <laughs> and they, I got a call later. She totally denies this, but this is a common friend of ours who happens to now be a chief privacy officer, uh, <laughs> who was my hiring manager at the time. She was out on a maternity leave. I met her during her maternity leave, bless her heart. And she called me up and she said, we've got two candidates. One is really qualified, and the other one is you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thought, okay. Um, and she said, but the whole team thinks you're a perfect fit for Sun. And I'm so glad that they did take the chance on me. And knowing the personality of that organization, I think they were right. And it enabled me, because I had the freedom at Sun, to say such things without being immediately terminated, that when McNeely was running around saying, you have no privacy, get over it, I was able to put together a business plan with Jonathan Fox and we went to Scott and I said, I, sometimes I work for you and sometimes I'm a shareholder and you work for me and I, I need you to listen to me now because I'm offended by that statement because I, now I, at that point I had my first child, Miss Thang. I said, she needs more. She needs more. And you know, 3000 people getting murdered. Every single one of them had a story. 
9-11. I mean, we, we experience that every day in the heart of COVID-19. It's like a 9-11 every day. But 3,000 people getting murdered doesn't mean that the rest of us lose our human rights. And it doesn't mean that each and every one of them didn't have a story that was absolutely sacred. And to me, that's privacy. And Scott, to his eternal credit, looked at me and he said, okay, kid, here's some rope, go hang yourself. And that's how I left uh, the legal part of the business and, and started a business within a business at Sun Microsystems. And we called ourselves chief privacy officers because we quite frankly weren't senior enough to call ourselves anything. Most of us weren't even directors at that point. So we, we made ourselves chiefs and we forced our way into the C-suite. And you know, here we are 20 years later and you can see the progression that the field has taken. It, it's astonishing to me even. Hell yes. Michelle, one of the things that I love so much about what this podcast has done for me is it gives me the opportunity to have conversations with friends of mine that I have known for years and discover things that I did not know. And I love to know these things about you. I mean, when I hear you describing yourself as a student who is working with robots and kids with disabilities, and you talk about the wonder of seeing them learn to exert control in their environment. And you talk to me about an early mentor of yours. And I just, I've always known those things about you. And now I can see some history and some context of where it came from. You have always been an advocate for people to exert control. And you have this perspective that says, I see technology and I am an attorney. I see policy and I am an economist. I see money and I see how these three worlds come together and result in reality. And Michelle, I would love to know about so many things, but the thing that I will ask you about right now is Drumwave. I want to know about Drumwave and I want to know about your thoughts on the current events of today's world. What is up with our data? And oh. what should it look like? And what is happening? What can we expect? What should we hope for? Tell me what you think. Yeah, so it's so big. And I mean, it's too bad this isn't like humans of InfoSec that goes on for 20 hours because boy, we could have just a thesis on this, on this question alone. So let's unpack it one thing at a time. I'll start with optimism because, you know, that's how I like to roll. I mean, who, who else would go <laughs> marching into McNeely's office as the, the CEO and chairman of the board, you know, a known curmudgeon, uh, darling of the press because he was kind of the human quote machine saying outrageous things and tell him he was wrong. You know, what kind of hubris does that? And I'll say that it absolutely wasn't a cockiness that thought that I was going to be successful. It was a passion that I can't live in a world that's any other way. I can't imagine having all of us living in this world together and accepting that our virtual selves, our, our digitally recorded selves could be falsified, could be sold, bought and sold without any say-so, without any control, without any means of us 
to actually look at each other as humans. So if you are in a position of being a parent, you are fiduciary for human life. If you are an employer, you are a fiduciary for human life. Our HR departments have gotten so wrapped up in trying to be plastic Barbie dolls that they forgot. And I love that your role ties humanity, HR, HR effectiveness, having the right humans in the room, having humans who are empowered to do great work and grow is not the same thing as a limiting thinking, let's just get risk off the table. So if we think about data in those same lines, if data is really just about getting risk off the table, then just stop collecting it for God's sakes. You know, like why? Why are we working so hard to actually get to really don't care what that person's motivation is beyond buying stuff? Why don't you just go ahead, choke off their credit score, go behind the scenes, figure out that they're only gonna ever get to see one car and that car is going to be black and, and be done with it. And I think the answer to that is A, there's a ton of profit in them, their, their hills and having diversity of choice. B, I think we all suspect that we wanna be humans and be treated with respect. So I think that that impulse of humanity has been stronger than every historical attempt at tyranny. So I think that sounds like a negative, but I actually think it's a powerful positive. You know, we're sitting here talking, we're both in the United States right now, and watching constitutional tests that haven't taken place in the well over 200 years of our country's history here. We're seeing leaders failing to lead. We're seeing people in the streets desperate and scared and violent and that's the cops. We're seeing people desperate, scared, and violent. And these are the protesters agitating for change. So that's the context of this conversation today. And it's very heady. And it's very easy to get lost in it. And, and as, as I alluded to before, we're also recording this in the middle of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. We're that's losing 3,000 people a day to this terrible virus. And, and it's tragedy on a human scale that our brains, thank God for us, are not designed to cope with. So how do we deal with this? And what does it mean to business? You know, this is not a, a religious show or, or a, a show about philosophy. How do we take this back and we say, knowing all of this about our, our human context and learning as much and as quickly as we can about this particular moment in time and where we're at in business, and looking at the winner's and the potential losers in business right now. And I'm looking at winners that are there out of trust in desperation, folks who are getting a huge ramp up of their services, whether or not they have earned that trust with secure services. Others that are not being used out of fear. Hospitality industry is in dire straits and I think they are having to reconsider what they do going forward. So let's look at these two types of business and, and how I look at them as a CEO of Drumwave. We are the data value company. And I mean that as a double entendre. We are creating value by looking at, tracking, creating scores and metrics and certificates that look at row by row, column by column, data set by data set. What are your data assets? So what I tell all my customers these days is, I, 
I don't know where you're going to drive your business. I don't even know where we're going to be in our, in our homes or in the streets in 18 months. But I do know one thing. You don't have your data under control yet. And I know another thing. You can't get there without a map. You can wander and get to destinations, but you can't drive strategy without a map. And right now, every single business, even if you already were quote unquote working for home, you have been turned on your heads. The way we think about work, the way we think about our firewalls, the way we think about our cars as massive computing features and functions. We all have little spots where we know where the Wi-Fi is best in our homes. So down to the granular level of simply walking from the kitchen into the living room to get a snack and knowing what your Wi-Fi connection is, we're thinking about data without thinking about data. So Drumwave wants you to actually think about data as data. Think about data as an asset, even when you may not have the currency that you may want to have, you do have exponential growth in the data that you actually are experiencing. And so we come at it at a couple different levels. One is sort of on the every man level of every man, woman, and child can visualize their data better. So you can open what we call your wallet. It's sort of a banking metaphor. And that's your workbench for data sets that you have on your laptop. So we're in the middle of a pandemic. I need to raise series A money. I'm going to get the data feed that I'm legally entitled to from LinkedIn, and I'm going to put it on a visual map, and I'm going to associate it with another data set, which is my co-founder's uh, data set, and we're going to see how do we have common connections and how do we get meetings that we want to get. Interesting, you know, not entirely novel, but what if we had that transaction going on with your big data sets, as well as your spreadsheets that you have on your platforms, as well as the information you're getting from apps that you're running, and everyone registered those data sets. Auditors, and our C-level product is called Audit. So folks like me who've been governance officers for years and years, I don't really need you to tell me, help me identify what is PII. I know what PII is. What I need to do is I need to see all the data at once and look at how it is associated with the humans in my, in my organization. That's my mise en place for strategy. So we allow you to register data sets, interrogate them vertically, right? Just looking at that data and, and exploring it. And then we also let you at the, at the strategic level, look across all data sets and the folks that are registering those data sets and really look at how they interoperate. You know, do you have that beautiful link of a role in HR data that is linked to key management in your encryption store? If you don't have that link, I literally don't see it on the tree map. And I can go out of the tool and I can have a conversation with you. Or I can send you the data set and say, hey, Caroline, call me. Let's have a, a conversation while we're looking at the live data. What does this mean? How does this work? What does this mean for the business? And then you get to be an expert in what you do. I get to be an expert in what I do. And the C-levels and the board, they get one common set of metrics. So we're driving understanding your data and really leveraging everything that you can when the world has gone out of control. And, and I'll kind of, I'll, I'll go on just two examples quickly because I know that was kind of a, a mouthful. In the case of large communication platforms, for example, 
where you have exponential growth in your customers and the, your use patterns, et cetera, you really need to get a handle on that to understand what inadvertently broke, what data is going places where you didn't think it was going to go. It's not the same as the security monitoring because it's not an active monitoring tool per se. What you're looking at is data sets. So you're looking at the relationship of data sets and how data is actually talking to other data sets and how are those parent-child relationships in your data architecture working or not working for you. In the case of hospitality, for example, I'm going to guess that the, the large providers are not just going to open their doors and say, I hope people start traveling again. I have a feeling that they probably will have absolutely new ways of presenting their products as experiences where you say, for example, I know that you, Caroline, and your two next door neighbors have been pandemicking together. Let's have a controlled experience for you on a, a Hilton or, or Marriott property so that your bubble comes together, your social bubble comes together during the pandemic. I'm totally making this up. I don't know if they're thinking this way, but if I was a data strategist for a hospitality group, I would be looking at the data in a very new, fresh way, thinking about how society is interoperating, how we're traveling, how we're relating to each other, and how hungry we are. If I could be in the same room and throw my arms around you, you would be lucky to get away from me in like 12 hours, Caroline. <laughs> Michelle, this is so cool. You are so many steps ahead of so many of us. And just hearing you chat for a few minutes about your thoughts here, there are a bunch of things that are occurring to me. I'm thinking about my data, which I don't really think about. I'm thinking about the data of my children. I'm thinking about the data of my family. I'm thinking about the data of the employees of the company that I work for. I'm thinking about the data of the customers that we have and of our penetration testers. And it strikes me that you are and you have been sort of this defender of our digital data when we didn't even really know that that was a thing. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think I'm shocked about, how many people care about privacy now. To be honest, I'm absolutely as shocked as anyone else. I, I just, you know, I think about me when I met you 10 or 15 years ago and my activity on social media and the things that I shared and thought were fine to share and which I have now hidden and which I know that like you can't really ever hide that stuff. And and I also, I, I think that there is this fundamental thing about any given moment in history, which says, we don't know what's going to come next. This has never happened before. There is no precedent for how to proceed. And hopefully we have leadership that uses data to determine best next steps. We've never been at any point in history, ever. Why not make it beautiful? Yes, yes. Why not use the data, protect the data, even if people don't know themselves that it needs to be protected? Because right now, people's data, it's being misused and we have no idea. My mind is blown and I am so excited 
for the future of this industry. I think that now is the time. And, and I want to just say thank you so, so much for joining us today, for sharing your story with us, for sharing your experiences with us. And I just can't wait to see what's next for you, Michelle. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. And it's always such a pleasure. It's been fun growing up with you. I feel like we've grown up together. You know, we were sharing stuff about our kids this morning before we got on the line here. And I always think of your babies as babies. And it's, it's amazing to watch the industry unfold as we are raising up our humans. I, I purposely on my LinkedIn for years and years have had CEO of growing little people into big people because I think we learn from every moment in our lives as parents, as daughters, as friends, and as obviously as professionals. And I think when we take all of that and we put it and we create values that we hold dear and the things that we will defend no matter what, then we create value. We can sell new things. We can have better businesses. We can make more money. It's not one or the other. It's We've never had this day in history before, and it's time to, to do something about that. Yes, agree. Michelle, thank you again so much. Thank you, it's a total pleasure. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt.io, a pen testing as a service company. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you enjoy podcasts. And don't forget to say hello. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.